Welcome to Grasp Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. My name is Michael Sanborn, and I'm a PhD student in computer science at Vanderbilt University. This is a conversation with Michael Bess, a Chancellor's Professor of History, Professor of Communication of Science and Technology, and Professor of European Studies at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Bess is a specialist in 20th and 21st century Europe, with a particular interest in the interactions between social and cultural processes and technological change. His most recent book studies the existential risks posed by climate change, nuclear weapons, pandemics, and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. If you could speak a little bit to how you first got involved with history, when did you realize that you wanted to study history? You're also an author. Uh, how did you get into writing? Uh, maybe if, if you care to discuss kind of your early education, undergraduate, and then transitioning to uh, getting your, your doctorate. Yeah, so I sort of fell into history um, inadvertently. I, um, as an undergrad, I had no intention of becoming a history professor, and I thought they were just kind of nerds and just wasn't interested. I did take one intellectual history class as an undergrad. My undergrad um, uh, was at Reed College, the small liberal arts college in Portland. Um, and I had only really figured out that I had a brain when I, somewhere around age 18, uh, when I, I, I went and studied abroad in Italy um, nice. for a year. Um, I, I, I come from a, a family where my mom, my dad was American, and my mom was Italian, born in Italy, and insisted that we speak Italian uh, when I was growing up. Unlike some Italians who tried to you know, meld into the, in, into the culture, and mm. she was like, no, we're going to talk Italian at home, and that's the way it works. And, oh. um, so I grew up, that was my, actually my first language was Italian. So I had access, large network of cousins in northern Italy, and then she also had worked in France and, and loved England. So we spent a lot of time over in Europe. So I, I grew up kind of half time, you know, most of the time growing up in California, but every summer heading to France or England or more often Italy uh, and just spending time there. So I had strong sort of European cultural uh, context growing up. Mm -hmm. So I go into, uh, before, just before going to college, I um, spent this year in Italy and fell in love with, um, I discovered that I had a brain and I fell in love with Italian art. Italian. Uh, I was in central Italy, the town of Perugia, where there's a wonderful university. There's a big Italian university and then there's a university for foreigners and they had art history classes. And, um, I just got, fell in love with it, and I was so enthusiastic that the professor, who was must have been in his early 70s, he had been leading tours all over central Italy for the Academy of Fine Arts um, for many decades, and he said, he took me aside at the end of the semester when classes were shutting down, and he said, look, the summer's coming, I, I just can't bring myself to walk up and down these hill towns anymore. So uh, I have the knowledge, you have the legs, 
why don't we form a, an arrangement and that way you know I will sit with you on Friday and we'll spend all day and I will dump into your brain all the information <laughs> that I have about Siena or Florence or Assisi or Spoleto or mm -hmm. all these beautiful Italian central Italian little towns all and, and I will tell you where to turn turn left point out this then go five steps then look and uh, meanwhile also how to interpret the art so uh, that was an incredible opportunity that just ignited my passion mm -hmm. for I did that all summer long and so I was an art history major for my first two years as an undergrad um, and I kept I, I was writing papers at Reed College enthusiastic art history papers and my professors kept saying you know this is a decent art paper but it's not really an art history paper the questions you're asking are more philosophical in nature you're kind of using the art mm. to ask broader philosophical questions which is great but it's not really art history to do an art history paper you have to you know, focus on the art and then, mm -hmm. oh okay and I'd go back and I'd write a paper on something else and then I'd hand it in and they'd say still a philosophy paper <laughs> not an art history paper interesting so after a little while of that happening they just said get out of here go over to philosophy you belong in philosophy um, you'll be much happier there so I then went over and finished my undergraduate in philosophy. During that whole time, I, like I said, no history classes. I had one intellectual history class. And in philosophy, it's true, I loved it. And that, that still is, kind of saturates the way that I approach all my teaching and mm -hmm. at some level my thinking and from the different book projects that I've undertaken. I've never quite recovered from that itch to ask philosophical questions. And I frame my World War II class is I, I put it right on the syllabus. This is not going to be a military history class. This mm -hmm. is going to be more like a moral dimensions of the war, wow. asking broad philosophical questions. And so if you're here for the military history, you're just going to be annoyed so, you know, right up front. But still, I still get students who complain that there's not enough military history. So I finished my undergrad. Um, and I decided to try being a journalist. My father had been a journalist. My uncle had been a fairly eminent jur journalist. Um, and it sounded appealing to me to go and like, ideal goal would have been a New York Times correspondent in Paris or something like that. And so I decided to go to grad school in journalism, applied, got into Berkeley Journalism School. And um, I, I tried, what had happened at that time in the history, sort of, of the field of philosophy in the US, there was about a 20 year period when philosophy, you couldn't really study the famous names like Kierkegaard or Kant and Hegel or Plato and get into a grad school. You had to do really sort of mathematical, formal logic, um, literally functions like function of justice and try to quantify there was this move to render philosophy more rigorous and I hated that I thought it's a first of all I thought it's a farce because you still are you may be quantifying but you're still underneath the surface um, having to use the concepts and and then we get back in the same can of worms about interpreting the underlying definitions that you're using to mm -hmm. allegedly quantify. I found the whole thing uh, dispiriting, and so I, I didn't apply to go to become a philosophy 
you know, PhD. I, I just applied as a journalist. And uh, so I, I worked as a journalist for a year, um, in, partly in Italy and in Rome, and then um, in Portland, Oregon. I went back and worked as a general assignment reporter for the Portland Oregonian, which is a local newspaper. Um, and then I went to Berkeley um, Journalism School. And I said, well, if I'm going to be a European correspondent for some newspaper, um, I better learn some European history. And I took a graduate level, the first year sort of graduate level history course in the history department at Berkeley. And, uh, and it was this moment, like, you know, St. Paul on the way to Damascus, <laughs> he falls off his horse, the skies light up. And I was sitting down in the library reading uh, Georges Lefebvre's history of the French Revolution. And I just realized very clearly, this is what, I mean, academia is really my home. Mm -hmm. Journalism had been fun, but in journalism, literally you arrive in the morning, you don't know what, what's up, and the managing editor says, Chinese ambassadors in town have a story on my desk by 2 p.m. Hmm. And That's how it, journalism it's, is. You know, it's intense. And, a lot of telephoning and scrambling around and hype. And I'm just not, that, that constitutionally, that didn't work for me. The pressure, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I could do it, but it was unpleasant. Mm. Whereas, so now, you know, academia, your deadlines are much farther away. If you're you know, writing a book, it's five years away. So that was a much more sort of relaxed pace and mm -hmm. you can sort of sit around and ruminate. I'm not a, good at quickly formulating answers. And some, some people have that. I have a, friend who's been a journalist all his life, and he just thrives on that, but not me. So I switched uh, out of journalism and into history. So once again, it's this, this kind of tortuous process by which I sort of backed my way into it, and then found out I, I really loved it. I spent nine years uh, in graduate school wow. at Berkeley because they kept funding me, so I, was in, I loved it. Uh, I loved graduate school. I spent four years on my dissertation, two years traveling around Europe, researching it, mm -hmm. and then two years back in Berkeley writing it. And so it was four countries. It was um, England, France, Italy, and the United States. Four peace activists trying to uh, figure out a way out of the Cold War, trying to envision ways that the world could escape this bipolar geopolitical system, mm -hmm. ideological rivalry, and the nuclear weapons that came with it. The motivation for that was that this was the early to mid-1980s, and uh, there had been a very sharp escalation of the rhetoric in the Cold War. Um, both the Russians and the Americans had, were putting in these much more dangerous intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Europe, and uh, the rhetoric really did sound like they were talking seriously about this is something we could fight and win, and it scared the hell out of me. So I decided let me at least use my dissertation work to try to understand better those who have sought alternatives and, and see if that's something that could be more broadly disseminated and make this book sort of practically useful mm -hmm. as a small contribution toward people's understanding of opportunities for peace and alternatives. So that was my motivation in writing that thesis. In retrospect, it was probably way too ambitious to do four separate nations, mm. um, which is, you know, was a big, big project. It, it would have been better if my mentors had, um, you know, kept them to one country. Um, 
but they didn't, and um, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I eventually finished, and then came straight here to Vanderbilt, right, as soon as I finished that dissertation. And the joke is, I came to Vanderbilt in the fall of 1989, I, I just finished my dissertation, and I had a dissertation that, you know, was up to date on all the cutting edge literature, political theory, my outside field was political science. Uh, so I, all the literature on the Cold War, I had at the tip of my fingertips. And I, I said, um, you know, I, I summed it up with the conclusion, the Cold War is here to stay. This was the late summer of 1989. And uh, this, was the, this was the consensus among the experts diplomatic diplomats, diplomatic historians, historian, people who are working in international relations. This is a structural part of, of the post-war order. It's even more powerfully rigid and locked in place because it's not just geopolitical, it's also ideological. Mm. Uh, so it's here to stay. And that was my premise. So you know, then the question is, if that's the, the, the condition that we're stuck with, then how do we gradually nudge that in a different direction? And of course, my, in the first three months of my being here at Vanderbilt, the, the Cold War ended, and right in front of my eyes, and everybody, including me, were just sort of like, what just happened? Mm -hmm. And that was a powerful experience to, to see how so many people could be utterly wrong about the history that's happening uh, in, in their own time. Right? We just all didn't see it coming, including people like Gorbachev, I think, who you know, were highly instrumental in making all this stuff happen. I think it kind of just got out of everybody's control. And it ended up not being nearly as violent or as apocalyptic as it really could have been. It just kind of, the Soviet empire just kind of imploded. And things that had seemed immovable suddenly became very fluid. And mm. it was, I, I, I always start my history classes with that. Like, history made an ass out of me. And I was in good company uh, with the people, all of, all the experts. We made an ass out of all the experts, and that's kind of one of the things that makes it interesting. Is it, it, it's in many ways unpredictable. That element of unforeseen effects, unintended effects, and sort of cascading causal processes that escape human control. Um, that it was a powerful impact on me sort of intellectually in the beginning of my career makes me love history. What history had in common with philosophy, philosophy the way I prefer to, to think of it, is that there's a philosophy of everything. You can, and there's a history of everything. It's one of these fields that is, allows you to, you could do economic history, political history, environmental history, you can study history of science, you can study the history of fashion. You know, is there's everything it can legitimately be studied from a historical perspective. And I like the breadth that that afforded me as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a scholar, as a teacher. Uh, so, and, and that's kind of probably the way I would have worked as a philosopher as well. I like not being stuck in any one particular narrow defined field, but the ability to range around. Yeah, so that's the sort of Genesis, I, I, I kind of backed into becoming a historian. Never, yeah, I mean, eventually I had to say, yeah, I'm a historian, but it was, it was something that 
um, I, I had no, no idea that that's where I was going to end up as a field. Would you say, so first of all, I guess I, by way of like confession slash caveat, I am, have not always been, I guess, as interested in history as I am now. Um, in high school, I was always kind of like math, science, this, that, histories in the past, we're looking into the future. And of course, it's an asinine thing to say because what has passed, the history of humanity, very, uh, it, it motivates and it is portentous of things to come. So definitely appreciate that now. My history skills are um, somewhat lacking. I uh, have read or started, I guess, Planet in Peril. I'm on chapter 15 and just alluding to the dynamical system kind of concept that you you just kind of covered with the Cold War, I think is a really fascinating perspective to take. And then I was also wanting to know if you thought or considered the initial opportunity doing the Italian art situation. Is that, was that like a serendipitous or chance encounter that obviously kind of uh, evolved into you're sitting here. Totally. Wow. Totally serendipitous. I, I, my mom sort of said, you know, you speak Italian so you can go to this university for foreigners and skip straight to the highest level class where there's, they're really doing content. They're not just teaching how to speak Italian. Mm-hmm. And so I was the youngest person in the class of like 70 or 80 oh, wow. persons from all over the world. And I had a gas that year. I met, you know, I made friends from all of them were older than me. It was it was weird to be the youngest person in the class, but it's it's it was an intellectual awakening. I just realized thinking about stuff can be really fun. And up until that point, all I had really, you know, I was growing up as a California Northern California Bay Area high school kid, and we rode our bikes around, and we had mini bikes, and you know, I mean, it was just sort of I had a, a blast being sort of a thoughtless, heedless youth, but I had not really discovered the inherent joy of, you know, what my mentor in, uh, in grad school used to call the life of the mind, you know, just, uh, just thinking about stuff. And mm-hmm. once that really, in Italy, that somehow, that was the moment. Those teachers, that context, uh, just outside the school was a famous arch called the, it was called the Etruscan Arch. It was literally outside the front door of the school, it was this huge I say, hundred foot tall stone structure, and it embodied. You could you look at it and say, okay, so th- those biggest stones, the initial arc, was put in around 700 BC by the Etruscans. Then the Romans came and they added another layer to it, and you can see that. And then then there was a medieval column with sort of Gothic structures, but then all, all every. People, every era seemed to put its own layer. And then there was another layer that came in under the neoclassical. So on top of this whole thing was this kind of pyramid and neoclassical. So it was an embodiment of, you know, 2,500 years of, of history, uh, right? You know, that, that makes an impression. And it was just cool to go under there to go get my pizza you know, <laughs> every day. It was just cool. And, uh, and then these teachers were showing me, you know, all this. There was a class on literature, there was not just the art history, there was the history, there was uh, a whole class just on Dante. Oh, wow. and it was cool. It was, and for me, I, was just, I threw myself into it and sort of never looked back. And then when I went to undergrad, uh, I, I worked really hard as an undergrad, too, because I was just loving it. I 
maybe I worked too hard. Yeah. Well, so I guess on that note, as an amateur of, of history, I would yeah. love to hear your kind of assessment or the approach. How So how does one study history or what is your specific process for scoping and synthesizing events? How do you decide whether or not something is worth your time to really dissect and understand uh, kind of what was happening at a certain time and like how do you develop these perspectives and uh, kind of formulate them in a way or uh, massage them in a way that are useful for insights into the future? Well, it's, it's, it's a weird discipline because unlike like some of the social sciences, I consider history to be a humanities discipline. Some people see it more as a social science discipline, and so that in itself reflects sort of a tension within the field. Mm. But most historians would agree that we have a, a methodological toolkit that we all develop, where we, you know, you, you try to see, well, is this, first of all, grappling with all the evidence, or is it cherry-picking the evidence? Is this comprehensive in the sense that it's trying to really look at the phenomenon uh, that you're, that whatever it is that you're studying, all of it, or is it just some little portion that's missing the bigger picture, the context? Um, you know, to what's, in what extent does it mesh with or contradict the existing literature on this topic? And if it's different, how does it, if it takes a, a different set of conclusions, how persuasively does it make those arguments? There's all this methodological toolkit that we train our graduate students here in their first year mm -hmm. to develop. So we definitely have a methodological toolkit, but it's far more diffuse than in a, a scientific discipline or even a social science discipline. It's, it's kind of something you learn by doing. And definitely what, what's cool about, about you, if you read the books that my, I have 40, 40 colleagues here in the history department at Vanderbilt. We're the largest department in the College of Arts and Science. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, just barely. I mean, English is also really big, and poli sci is really big. But everyone, you know, when you're launching a book project, you're, you know, one of the questions is, what am I, what am I looking at that is important, has relevance to something important about knowing landscape of the past or the implications of what's happening in today's world and what what could I say that hasn't already been said what you know it's kind of like an artist you know how do I do something that hasn't already been done before mm -hmm. is there is this a fertile area where I'm likely to you know make hypotheses will those hypotheses be original exciting and interesting to other people because they have impact they're, they're not just so you, you start with these very broad questions. So I'll give you an example. My second book, I mean, the first book, my dissertation, which became my first book, was how can I understand better how to not die in a nuclear war, right? How can the world escape that, that problem? The second book, I became excited about environmental, uh, about you know, environmentalism mm -hmm. as a movement, mm -hmm. the green movement. And uh, that was, the, uh, I'd say it was late 1980s um, and early 1990s, my first years here at Vanderbilt. What excited me about the Green Movement is the 
the breadth of the vision. They were challenging the assumptions that had undergirded industrial civilization for the preceding 200 years, which was growth. Mm. An ideology of infinite growth, endless constant growth, that's how you measure societies. And that had in fact dictated both communist and capitalist visions, all presupposed endless industrial growth, productivity and all that. And the Greens were saying, no, that's misguided. The planet is finite. We keep doing that. We're going to run out of resources and we're going to pollute the planet. So actually going from this infinite vision to finite, some sort of cyclical. And I, that struck me as, wow, that's a civilization-defining uh, challenge intellectually. So that sounds really cool. I'm gonna, I want to learn more about that and think more about that. So I sort of threw myself into that. And this time, um, wisely, I limited it to one country, France. I'm sorry. Because I spoke French, I loved going, being in France. Initially, I was thinking of doing Germany. Once again, this is an example of the, uh, the randomness of how things sometimes develop. Mm. I was going to do Germany because um, there was a very strong green movement in the 1980s in Germany that had Europe's strongest green movement, one of the strongest in the world. And it was become politically very influential, and a lot of people were followers, mass demonstrations, and things like that. So if I was going to study the Green Movement, that seemed to be the place to go. I had spent four years, uh, four months in southern Germany learning German so I could, I could get by, I could read it, I could sort of speak it. Um, and so I, I, I would have been able to do the research. I probably would have learned the language much better if I had stayed. And my wife said, well, you know, if you go to Germany, you're going by yourself because I don't want to live in Germany. It's like cold and... Uh, if, but if you find a reason to go to France, then I'll come with you and we'll, you know, we can be together in France while you do your research. So instead of studying the wonderful, powerful German Green Movement, my mm. hypothesis question then became, why doesn't France have a strong... The French had distinguished themselves by having Europe's, still today, mm -hmm. largest, most dense network of nuclear reactors for generating electricity, uh, they had distinguished themselves by having a very small and kind of not particularly influential Green Party and Green Movement. And they distinguished themselves internationally by sinking the Rainbow Warrior, this, this Greenpeace ship, down off the coast of New Zealand. So they had sent secret agents because the, the Greenpeace ships were disrupting French nuclear tests in the South Pacific. Oh, wow. And so they sank it. They blew it up and sank it. Somebody died. And there was a whole, oh, wow. you know, like... And so the French had this reputation for being anti-green, whereas the Germans were very pro-green. Mm -hmm. And so my hypothesis was, you know, why are the French so anti-green? That was my... I get there within two weeks of just sort of randomly going around, starting to collect materials. I realized my hypothesis was completely wrong. They had just as strong, just as influential a green movement as the Germans did. Mm -hmm. It just was different in the way that it uh, manifested. Hmm. What evidence did you have or, yeah, I guess, well, first of all, that was a really clever approach. It's like, uh, your wife wanted to go to France, but yeah. you're like, I can still bake this into yeah. my examination of, of this uh, idea. It's still an interesting question Definitely. To, to explore. But it was very clear, you know, green stuff was all over the place, just like as much as I, I'd been in Germany already. I mean, 
you know, in the supermarket, in the, in the textbooks that I was starting to look at that children were reading in, in grammar school, the laws, there was actually the, already a ministry for the environment. None of this was known sort of broadly. France was widely stereotyped as being, yeah, they sink Greenpeace ships and they have nukes. They have nuclear weapons and they have these nuclear reactors and they're anti-green, end of story. And so that had not really been questioned very, very much. And when I got there, uh, it didn't take long for me to realize, okay, throw that hypothesis away, let's actually see what's going on. And so it ended up being a book that stood back from the whole society, of French society at the time, and said, in what ways has the green ethos really permeated or penetrated deeply into French society, and in what ways has it really just failed? Has it been superficial? And why? How has this evolved? What makes France different from Germany, from England, from the United States, from other advanced democracies? What makes France special? That became the, the, the project. And I basically, you know, the way it, it was conducted was I eventually developed a, an argument, but I, had, I didn't have a thesis at that point. I, my hypothesis had been thrown out the window, so now I, I was going to say, how did, how did the environmental movement make or fail to make an impact on France between 1960 and 2000? And so I, I just basically sat for a year and went to archives and went to interview activists, and some of them gave me access to their personal archives. Oh, wow. Which huge. So I, the joke that I made at the time was I, I developed a Xerox tan <laughs> because nowadays you can just go in with your cell phone, click, 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 yep. you know, and it all gets stored and it's super easy. Back then I had to like pay 25 centimes, uh, you know, per copy and take the stuff down to the local copy center and make the copies. I came back with like four suitcases full wow. of photocopies. And so then I really sort of plunged into this material and worked through it for another couple of years. Wow. And gradually sort of developed a hypothesis, which, yeah, it starts to come into focus. And then I had, oh, one day, it just was like, yeah, that's my argument. My argument is that France has developed this particular sort of, like the, the title of the book is The Light Green Society. There's this particular sort of quality where the greenness is everywhere, but it hasn't really penetrated the deep structure of the society. They're still pro-growth. They're still, you know, uh, definitely not sustainable, mm -hmm. but they're starting to go interestingly in directions that could become more sustainable if they were further deepened and, and pursued further. So it's light green. Mm. So that became a term then that, that was my argument and that gave it a, a cogency mm. that worked. That was a book that, that worked better than the first book. Yeah, I remember, well, so now it uh, makes sense to me now because I only got enough time to get into Planet in Peril, but yeah. that is really interesting. I didn't know, and also learned from Planet in Peril the extent of the nuclear resources that uh, France relies on. That's a interesting, so I guess with that, transitioning to more generally reconciling the development of technology with kind of, I think, the inevitable dichotomy of 
potential goodness and potential badness. Yeah. So I guess, again, kind of, I know this is maybe rehashing some of Planet in Peril, but kind of wanted to hear uh, this first question I have is pretty much around how do we address or reason about or mitigate as technology advances? So four of the ones that you focus on are climate change, biology, nuclear weapons, and AI. Yeah. And so my, my uh, and these are not, these are not completely independent technologies. Right. So one concept that I've listed here is like, imagine you have a nuclear powered data center that's housing GPUs, that's yeah. enabling AI to search for some type of um, computational biology yeah. solution. And so how does that, like you really kind of ante up the potential fallout of that type of technology falling into the wrong hands. So yeah. how do you kind of make sense of the complexity and the amplified consequences of marrying um, technologies of that gravity? I'd say that the most powerful of the, um, the, the amping up technologies is AI. AI renders all the other technologies more potent. Um, there's a word that I'm blanking on right now that people use. It's like a force multiplier or something like that. It has a multiplier effect. So, you know, um, it, it, because it's intelligence, it means you're going to find ways to do whatever you're doing, hopefully better, mm. more effectively, more, uh, with more bang for your buck, more productively, more efficiently. So, um, of, of the four, I would say the, the synergies really radiate out from AI into all the other domains. The nuclear, yes, nuclear could be a very remarkable source of energy. Right? It could either be fission-powered or fusion-powered if that becomes possible. Um, but I don't see it influencing the others unless we have a nuclear war. Mm. then it would certainly influence everything and be catastrophic. But in terms of, uh, it's, it's a little different from the other threats because the other, climate change is definitely happening, but we don't know if nuclear war will ever happen. We just are living with the potential for it to happen, and if it does happen, it's, it's a huge disaster, and we've come way too close too many times mm. for it to, to be sane to continue to rely on those weapons. And so climate change is actually happening, and so how could that complexify and interact with the other three horsemen of the apocalypse? Well, climate change, for example, is going to uh, cause far more refugees. It's gonna cause crises of agriculture from radiating southward and northward from the equator as those areas become increasingly uninhabitable. Uh, as the century goes by, um, there are going to be all these climate refugees who are going to be clamoring at the gates. And you think people want to build walls today to keep those people out. Um, that's going to become uh, more and more dramatic if, if we don't turn that situation around. Mm -hmm. and so there's an example, just one way in which climate change Climate change is going to become economically more significant. The insurance industry is already having to take it into account. Oh, wow. they, they all influence each other. Well, yeah, because like, who wants to insure a house on the coast of Florida now when it's going to be you know, two meters underwater? That's true. They uh, had some friends in 
Fort Myers. I already forget the name of that hurricane, but it was, yeah. and like my my parents are in in Tampa actually, and they uh, kind of didn't really know what to do. But you had people that were kind of like standing their ground, and it's like, we have the the weather capabilities that we do, but your house just got leveled, and there was really not uh, a clear expectation of of what was going to happen. But point taken. I think these these four they they influence each other a lot. Synthetic biology. Now we're talking about maybe making. You know, bio partially hybrid, biologically based computers, mm -hmm. computers that use DNA as a computational device. And, you know, there's all, all these cutting edge things influence each other. The one that stands out as less so is nuclear, where it will influence everything very much. If you get infinite, cheap, safe fusion en energy, mm -hmm. that would be a big, big game changer. That might happen. Or nuclear war which also might happen, would be an even worse game changer in the negative sense. But the others are all sort of influencing and interacting with each other, but the one that does that the most, and you can see it, is the force multiplier effect of, of AI. What's one of the things that I emphasize a lot in my book is, uh, with the climate thing, is the potential, even if we were tomorrow morning able to emit zero CO2, mm -hmm. which we're very far from being able to do even by 2050. Wow. But we're still already stuck with a warming planet because of the CO2 that's already up there, floating around. So it's not enough to stop emitting the CO2. Mm -hmm. We actually have to undo the damage that we've already done because it's already up there and that's going to keep warming the planet. So we have to remove the CO2. So my you know, one of the core ideas that I make a big deal out of in that book is nuclear-powered carbon removal technologies. So you have these giant fans that blow air through a filter that grabs the CO2. And it has to be a very uh, it's an energy-intensive process because the CO2 in the, in the air around us that we breathe is actually a very small percentage compared to what it would be if you were scrubbing a smokestack where the CO2 is much denser. Mm -hmm. Here it's like parts per million, so you have to have a very effective filtering device. You grab the CO2, you compress it, and you pump it a mile underground, kind of back where the oil was you know, before we brought it out, mm -hmm. and you can store it down there for a million years, and it just sits there, or it becomes uh, part of the rocks that uh, are down there, and it, it, to the extent that you can do that, you can take you know, CO2 out of play mm -hmm. as a greenhouse gas. The problem is it's super energy intensive, so you have to have a non-greenhouse gas emitting source of energy to do it. So nukes. And now you know, the nukes are becoming much, much safer than they were in the past. And if you compare the various sources of energy in our society today, one thing that really stands out is the nukes are scary because, oh, wow, with one of them, you know, you get Fukushima, you get Chernobyl. Yeah, that's terrible. But there's actually only, it's one of the least deadly forms of energy production that we have. Mm -hmm. It's like 9,000 people have died since 1945 from nuclear energy and something I forget the, the exact number. It was like two million a year die from coal. Wow. Because of what happens with the particulates that get put in the atmosphere and mm -hmm. respiratory diseases mm -hmm. 
and afflictions that follow from that, not to mention accidents and coal mining and all that. The numbers are dramatically different. So nuclear energy has this scary aura around it, and then this is what's frustrating. The environmentalists, you can't even say the word. That just they'll, they'll run away, like they oh, don't wow. even want to hear it. And that's one of the frustrating things, because we talk about right-wingers not wanting to hear about poverty or you know, not wanting to hear about vaccination or not wanting to, or denying climate change as, an, as, as a danger. Mm. You know, they don't want to hear about it. But here, the Greens, who admit that climate change is a serious problem, mm. don't want to hear the word nuclear, even if you present them with reams of data and persuasive evidence that this is a really promising, you don't have to have the magic of fusion, which we mm. don't know if it's ever going to succeed. Mm. We have fission reactors today that are far better designed than the ones, I mean, the ones that are functioning in our society were designed in the 1970s. And they're relatively safe, but we can make them even safer. So that if something goes wrong, they just shut themselves down quietly and that's, there's no, no, no harm done, you go in and fix the problem. These are the new reactors that people like Bill Gates are investing a lot of energy, uh, a, lot of, a lot of money into pursuing. And you couple one of those with one of these carbon what's called direct air capture machines. Okay. And you start to be able to undo the damage that we've already done, and then you have a, a, a climate that's no, you kind of have a, a control knob, a volume knob on the warming of the planet. Mm -hmm. You can actually dial it back to where it's not warming at all anymore. You can even cool it if you want at that point. Wow, that would yeah. be a, uh, a global HVAC unit or something <laughs> that's a, uh, Really interesting, and I actually so I wanted to, I guess, transition again or linger on like the politicization of yeah. uh, these problems. But it seems like, I mean, it's it's certainly frustrating. I wasn't actually aware that there's this visceral aversion to nuclear on the part of those that are uh, kind of most emphatic Can about. You look at the Green New Deal. Uh huh. The word nuclear nowhere doesn't come up. Interesting. Yeah, I remember reading, kind of about, well do away with this technology, we'll introduce this technology, and it kind of gets at the crux of my question, which is kind of like, those with legislative authority don't have the expertise, right. and those with the expertise don't have, probably don't want the legislative authority, and so there's right. like this yeah. ideological like deadlock yeah. because of complementary uh, like ineptitudes, I yeah. guess, yeah. and so how do you, like how do you, like so, the political obstacles that need to be overcome to effectively address this, and then I guess the trajectory for geopolitical power dynamics in light of these changes, uh, because it seems like to make global change work, it's going to start first in countries and then cooperation between countries. Well, the problem is we, we, we don't have time. That's one of the big problems is this is urgent climate change situation is urgent and we're sort of running out of time and these things take time because if you compare where we were in 1960 and you compare it to where we were in 1985 vis-a-vis -vis consciousness of the environment there's a huge difference if you compare where we were in 1985 to where we were in the year 2005 once again huge progress and again to today. Mm -hmm. And so you have today people like Greta Thunberg understandably frustrated, this is taking forever, you guys are just not getting it, 
all these people are still making money off of polluting the environment and climate change. So people get frustrated, but on the other hand, it's important to recognize that tremendous progress has been made and more and more people are becoming aware of it as a problem that needs to be addressed urgently. And unfortunately, there's just only so fast that that can happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you had a cataclysm, well then people's views change dramatically very quickly. Mm -hmm. But short of that, you know, where millions die or something like that, short of that happening, um, you just kind of have to wait for the population to educate itself about the pressing issues. And you can try, you know, people try to edge it. The activists try to nudge it and push it forward. But it's kind of an inertial system. Mm -hmm. You have to accept that. Uh, I mean, you have to understand that it's not going to, you don't accept it, you fight against it, the inertia. But mm -hmm. you have to understand that it's not going to go quickly and easily. And then, then weird things happened, like what, with the revolutions of 1989 that upended my whole doctoral dissertation, right? Turned the whole thing upside down. When suddenly, then it, the whole thing just kind of whoosh, rips apart. Mm -hmm. But underneath, when you go and look beneath the surface, the revolutions of 1989, those popular uprisings against communism, had been slowly simmering for 30 years before and being beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. But meanwhile, they've been spreading mm. and undermining the legitimacy of the system so that people even in power didn't really believe in the system anymore. And, and suddenly, off it goes. And mm -hmm. at that point, and that's totally unpredictable. Completely unpredictable. I want to, so that's, you're like kind of spot on with these transitions. So predictability, uh, one of the kind of promises of AI um, so mathematically, it's a universal function approximator. Um, I'm not claiming to be a guru. There's a lot of like rigorous theoretical math foundation to this, but you know, fundamentally, it gives us some notion of predictability into the future in some context, given a sufficient quantity of data. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you can, in light of these frustrating kind of interactions, and uh, it seems like the inability to take action. Uh, in a time frame that is increasingly urgent, yeah. can you steel man the? What does it mean to steel man? I saw that word in, in your question. What does oh, it mean? to like defend or basically propose uh, some reasoning for doing something. So, uh, I, yeah, the question is, can you steel man the use of AI for doing something like carrying out the functionality of? Uh, the United Nations, for example. Oh, yeah. Part of Planet in Peril, yeah. you discuss some of the political frameworks that have worked and haven't worked and kind of meditated on the productivity of uh, getting some things moving and having some success, but also realizing that things do take time and urgent timelines yeah. uh, kind of make things a little bit more difficult. But the reason I have this question is because uh, Facebook released uh, what is called Cicero, it's an, have you heard of this? It's an AI that was trained to play the game Diplomacy. Oh, I did hear about that. And it's supposedly, in their write-up, they discuss kind of the superhuman negotiation capabilities, the basically uh, time horizon, the ability to understand long-term consequences and, yeah. and knowing when to basically make strategic partnerships and when to not engage in some type of dealings. So. Do you think it would be productive or 
can you see a future where there's a human UN and there's an AI UN and then there's like some type of interaction between that those types of entities? It's weird because at one level, AI today is a huge uncertainty factor. Like here's AI bringing us greater predictions and blah blah, you know, mm. predictive capacity. Uh, it's getting smarter and smarter at doing mm. that stuff, analyzing patterns, right? Oh, so it'll be able to uh, uh, you know look at patterns in biology or in human social structures and. Meanwhile, it has become one of the single biggest wild cards because we don't know mm. what I was reading today an article about um, uh, What's his name? What? Well, there's the guy Jeffrey Hinton who just quit Google. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And then just today another one of these father figures of AI was uh, saying, you know, I don't know what's going to happen oh, wow. with this chat GPT and these large language models and mm -hmm. Uh, but we've seen what happened in terms of unintended effects of social media. When you have these powerful technologies that allow people to communicate in new ways, mm -hmm. and you plug that into a, you know, human nature, um, with all its wonderful qualities and all its nasty qualities, and it amplifies that. And lo and behold, you know, we suddenly have. A political polarization on a scale that we've never seen. So our democracy is semi-dysfunctional, mm -hmm. and we have extremism being propagated. And now, he said, you know, uh, the the very real possibility is that by the 2024 election, so much fake news, I images, video, text will be inundating our lives mm -hmm. that nobody will know what's true anymore. Nobody will trust anything anymore. I mean, that's a real crisis. And he said, this is a short-term impact, but right now AI is a huge factor of potential destabilization and big question marks. We don't know. So yeah, it could do lots of really good things in terms of efficiencies. Yeah, it could you know, help radiologists. Uh, one radiologist will be able to do the work of 10. One you know, computer programmer will be able to do the work of 50. Because it helps us, you know, be humans be so much more efficient. Those are great efficiencies, mm -hmm. but in this, this other, how, how it plays out at the societal level as a whole is a big, um, a big question mark. Uh, so, just as a sidebar, there, one of the things that I do think can be foreseen, um, and I'm not just making this up. There are many books now written by MIT level economists saying automation with these ex this generation of especially brilliant AI powered machines mm -hmm. is going to be unlike every other wave of techni technical innovation in the past. Mm -hmm. In the past you mechanize agriculture, well people move into industry. Mm -hmm. Or you mechanize the service, they go into entertainment. You know, you, you, there's always been a new wave of new jobs created. Well, this time around, they're saying, no, chronic mass unemployment is very realistically on the horizon because of, it's not that they're going to replace all humans, but they render a few humans capable of doing the job that had previously required 100. Well, suddenly, in all the professions where that happens, all these people are thrown out of work. And so that pushes you straight into universal basic income. You're almost forced to then 
well, to avoid having a massive like revolution, mm -hmm. you have to socialize the tremendous wealth generated by these super efficient AI powered industries mm -hmm. and redistribute it back so people have a decent living, which is what Arthur C. Clarke, the sci-fi mm -hmm. writer, said, you know, the goal of the future is 100% unemployment so we can all play and just let the machines do all the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're heading in that direction and serious economists are looking at the unemployment impact, which, you know, oh, it's just few Uber drivers or truck drivers. No, 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 no. This could become teachers, lawyers, doctors. It, it, it could, you know, render us all so efficient that there won't be enough jobs for all of us. And that could be a, a big problem. But coming back to the question of the United Nations, climate change, nuclear weapons, pandemics, bioweapons, AI, these present climate, these present planet level problems that cannot be solved by any one country operating on its own. One country tries to tackle any of those, it doesn't. There, it's the bigger system that creates the problem. So the premise of my book is planet level problems require planet level solutions. Pretty straightforward. But we, the instruments for coordinating planet level solutions are still in their infancy. So the book has two arguments. We've come a lot farther than we tend to think or realize in the past hundred years in building the beginnings of these coordination inst institutions, instruments, and we still have a long way to go, and it's probably gonna take a long time, maybe a hundred years, maybe even longer, mm -hmm. before we have an effective planet-level framework of governance where we can cooperatively regulate powerful technologies that, as you say, are dual use, like a knife, where you can cut your vegetables or you can kill somebody. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, the fossil fuels powered this unprecedented period of prosperity and then also now are threatening the planet. And it's the same, nuclear energy could give us infinite energy or it could give us nuclear war. Mm -hmm. Bioweapons, bio, synthetic biology can solve all kinds of you know, serious problems in beautiful ways. And AI could be one of the most beneficial tools humankind has ever invented, but then it could also become very, very disruptive. I'm, I'm not as worried as I was in the early days of my project about the singularity, mm. about, you know, um, now, you know, people ask, the makers of AI, people in, in your field, in computer science, you know, when, if AGI ever happens, when do you see it happening? And, you know, it's alarming that around half of them say, it could happen this century, AGI. And nowadays, it gives me chills. Yeah, I mean, nowadays people are saying, well, maybe even sooner, you know, and-, and, and Maybe it's- It's like, you know, maybe it doesn't, you don't have to wait for, you know, Stuart Russell, the guy who was the author of this major textbook, he's a professor at Berkeley of computer science, and he's the author of one of the most widely used undergraduate textbooks on AI. He said 2080 is his guess. But I bet that that has been revised now, because that, he said that two years ago, and you know, nobody expected this 
the chat GPT to do what it's doing. Yeah. Chat GPT is so far from AGI, I yeah. completely under, agree with the people who say, look, you know, it's at one level, it's a statistical analysis of language machine that allows it to, you know, replicate human language. Mm -hmm. But uh, down the line, it could potentially start to have the one quality that would be essential to any AGI. What's the one quality that it needs? It needs to have a common sense understanding of the human life world. Mm. If it can do that, then you say, fetch me a beer, and it understands that it needs to go through the door and not through the wall. And it understands like that, that you, know, you like this beer and not that beer, and it has to understand you know, the, all the things that we take like 25 years or 20 years to learn as humans mm -hmm. to function as autonomous adults mm -hmm. in the world. It, and uh, I, I think it could be that these large, these LLMs have the potential to be a big step in the direction of under the, the AIs having a much better feel for how to operate properly. Mm. We just had a very interesting talk the other day uh, by a guy who was saying, AIs of the sort that we have today using the database of every law that's ever been written mm -hmm. and all the legal decisions take that whole infrastructure render it analyzable by large language models mm -hmm. and suddenly you can extract all kinds of principles about human behavior and the norms by which we structure our society and it's not going to be perfect but it's going to be a huge step forward so it could be that you know, ten years from now, we really are quite a bit closer to AGI in a meaningful sense. And the, the worry, you know, for me has always been the sorcerer's apprentice. The, the, once these machines are not just interpreting the world and giving us, you know, little answers, but mm -hmm. actually having roles to play that are functional, mm -hmm. they could modify themselves yep. and escape human control. Well, that's a nightmare. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen. But. There, so I'm I've like gotten chills like three times now yeah. because I I do think about this stuff and I think you're very uniquely positioned to kind of contextualize some of the potential consequences. Um, I mean, the so I guess I, I have like three types of questions coming at you broadly. It's kind of uh, what you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is what does the I guess kind of how does this development of AI bode for the ability for humans to discern, you know, truth from not truth? And then along with that, how does the proliferation of all of this synthetic media, how does it potentially kind of stamp out our, so this time period, like the, you know, from the 21st to the 22nd century, uh, is there a possibility that it is outweighed or marred by, again, the as you said, inundation of whether it's images or videos, um, it kind of goes hand in hand with what you're saying about right now, ChatGPT is, you know, it's kind of interesting. You can kind of ask it these certain questions, uh, but people have actually started to build on this. There's something called AutoGPT. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, no. but it's basically, and that's kind of why I started to get chills there for a second, because you mentioned like self-replicating uh, or self-improving 
So AutoGPT is a program that is like a derivative of, of ChatGPT. I was playing around with it this past weekend. And what it basically allows you to do is you give a high level goal, you kind of uh, prompt it or contextualize it. You say, uh, you're an entrepreneur with businesses X, Y, and Z. Your goal is to identify the best ways to monetize a product, market to individuals, collect information to build a brand. Yeah. And basically what it does in this, in this loop, it iteratively identifies kind of information that is productive towards that goal. And so uh, I, can, I can follow up offline and, yeah. and show you if you're interested, but basically it says, yeah, here's the context, here's what I need to accomplish, here's what I need to do, yeah. here's the action that I'm going to take to do that. And it'll be like, yeah. browse website, or yeah. write this code, or you know, do X. And so there's two modes. One of them is... Or pay a human to do the following thing for me <laughs> that I can't do in the real world because I don't have a body. Exactly. It, it can it can create it can create or, you know, create accounts on, on websites. And yeah. that to me is absolutely frightening. But there's also, you can kind of let the, let the dog off the leash, I guess, by saying, I'm going to approve all of, like, I'm going to approve the next 10 actions for you to take. And whatever you decide is necessary, yeah. you automatically have authorization to do so. I've only run it in uh, authorize one action at a time. But yeah. uh, my whole point here is yeah. that the... AI kind of paradigm enables exponential progress where, and again, like we've yes. been discussing, there's exponential goodness and exponential badness. And humans are uh, basically like mostly linear or super linear at best in, yeah. in progressing. And so when you see something that is acting potentially uninterpretably to improve itself or modify its source code yeah. and not necessarily aligned with the interests of humans is pretty frightening. And, and one of the one of the things that plays into making that even scarier for me is we have a strong, companies have a strong incentive to build self-improvement into the machines because the most powerful ones are, are going to be the ones that figure out how to improve themselves. Mm -hmm. Working with humans, of course, but the ones, you know, the ones that learn what to do, like what you just said. Like, if I understand it correctly, you can now ask ChatGPT, answer this question, provide me with you know a set of things uh, ana with an analysis, and also identify what you consider to be the weakest parts of the analysis that I need to go and look at. And it'll come back and say, yeah, these are the weak parts of my yes. thing where they need more thought. And okay, so the that type of self-improvement capability uh, it, we have a, we're in an arms race. That's the definitely right now. Companies are in an arms race. You know, Google and, and Facebook and, and Amazon are in an arms race, mm -hmm. and and countries are in an arms race. So, oh, let's pause AI development uh, for six months uh, on all these advanced AIs. But immediately people say, "Whoa, the Chinese are not going to pause." And then we'll be owned by the Chinese because this is this game-changing technology, and you know that's a, a that's a realistic argument in a world that's run the way we run our world today, which is everybody competing with each other, mm -hmm. companies competing with each other, countries competing with, for dominance with each other, and so the argument in, in my book is there's a pretty radical change that's going to have to happen for climate change, nuclear weapons, synthetic biology, pandemics, AI, 
all these things are going to require us to start thinking very differently about the value of com competitive games. Mm. About, com you know, because we say, oh, the market, it, competition, it produces all this wonderful innovation. But more and more, you're starting to hear people say, we need to find ways to regulate, to put guardrails, mm -hmm. so that some things, you know, by mutual agreement, can no longer be done. And we've done that to a certain extent, somewhat successfully with bioweapons. Turns out the Russians were cheating for much, much, you know, much of the period following the 1972 bioweapons convention. They cheated. They had a big bioweapons program. But by and large, you know, we have not seen an explosion of bioweapons uh, proliferation all over the place. We've done a good job with the Asilomar principle in regulating recombinant DNA experiments and making sure that certain best practices are followed. It's possible to impose restrictions on ourselves cooperatively out of a mutually understood, this is in everybody's best common interest. Mm -hmm. And I use the European Union as a powerful and inspiring example of nations moving in a direction of, let's not just think of ourselves as Italians and French and Germans, let's think of ourselves as Europeans. What's in our common interest and how can we work together instead of working at cross purposes? Yeah, we may still compete. You know, Fiat can compete against Citroën and so forth. But we're going to be competing within a mutually agreed, agreed framework of rules and regulations and restrictions and guard, guardrails. Mm -hmm. Now, can we create that at the global level? For me, that's the question that hangs over humankind over the coming century or two. If we can't do it, if we prove incapable of doing that, then I think the odds of our making it through without some kind of cataclysm mm. go way down. If we are able gradually, incrementally, to continue the constructive things that we've been doing toward building, bridging institutions that allow us to work together even when we're not necessarily the best of friends, but we see common interests. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can do that, then we really have a shot at making it through and living on into another era that could be you know, remarkably better than anything we've ever seen. So it's, it's an inflection point in history. We've become so powerful mm -hmm. that we are now have the capability to destroy everything that we hold dear, or actually to maybe make it through into an, an era of greater wisdom. Right now, we're not showing a lot of wisdom, right? That, but, but it's, it's easy to get depressed. You read, because what makes headlines is the bad news. Mm. People don't put in the New York Times, page one, bread successfully delivered to supermarkets. Right? That doesn't happen. But when you look at the amount of actual cooperative, carefully regulated, good, good stuff that's mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. it's everywhere. And the, the question then is, how do we start to think of, oh, you're Chinese. Are you my enemy? Or do you have to be my enemy? How do we work together? We may see things differently about the best way to run a society. Mm -hmm. But where are the areas where our interests overlap? And and you know, especially overlap in ways that have to do with our survival. So it's not just sort of a casual overlap. How do we, can AI help us with that? Probably. 
AI could be a tool that helps us with that. Right now, it's the opposite. AI is where we are racing for dominant power. Mm. And that's, then AI is a highly destabilizing and dangerous factor. So it all has to do with what are our goals as, as humans, what's the wisdom with which we're pursuing these amazingly powerful technologies. Yeah, I think the, well, so I guess as an aside, I'm curious if you think the, well, I guess it's technically the space race, so there's still an element of competition, but if there is some unifying spirit behind humans, we're all humans, getting to another planet to potentially propagate our species and not like, I want to be in control of this part of the Pacific Ocean or I want what you have in your natural resource uh, situation and... That's, that's kind of what you get at is like the game theoretic yes. uh, incentive alignment problem is a massive one and it's kind of, yeah. uh, again, complicated ideologically, uh, I guess religiously, historically, culturally, yeah. uh, all kinds of, of issues. I mean, if we faced an invasion of Klingons or Martians, right, then that might get humanity finally to come together. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. And, and historically, people have come together more often successfully because of an external threat. They all perceive the external threat and say, well, okay, now we're we're gonna temporarily put aside our Mm -hmm. little differences here as neighbors because we're neighbors. Mm. And we have to get these bad guys out of our, you know. And we don't have that with the Martians and the Klingons. What we have is the threat of the destruction of our planet. And that's looming over us like like an enemy. Is that going to be enough to get us to unite? I don't know. But I take heart from the way that the Europeans have knitted together. You know, these countries like France and Germany that for centuries hated each other's guts Mm. and defined what's their national purpose? To dominate the other. And to dominate because otherwise they'll dominate us. And that's the game we're playing today with China or the Russians. We're still playing that game at a global level. The, the, the Germans and the French and the other countries, the Benelux countries, the Italians, they've all managed to get past that era. And now they think of themselves primarily as Europeans. And it's inconceivable for France and Germany to go to war with each, with each other. And they did that in 50 years. And it was a concerted process. They had leaders who you can go back and look, you know, actually promoted this, and mm-hmm. citizen exchanges, and children going to school in each other's, you know, learning each other's languages and then bringing the borders down and all that, all that careful decades of, of work. So I, the example of what's happened in Europe since World War II gives me hope more than anything else. It gives me hope that people can uh, start to see their common interests and act accordingly. Mm-hmm. Also, the way that the Russians and the Americans were able to build moderately cooperative security frameworks uh, to keep from launching a nuclear war during the Cold War. By the 1970s and the early 1980s, you know, these two arch enemies are even allowing each other to inspect each other's military bases. Like, that's amazing. Mm. And it was unthinkable in the earlier Cold War. But no, they, they, they understood that there were certain, it's better if you know what we have and we know what you have, 
then we're much less likely to you know have an accidental catastrophe between us. Yeah, I think the well, I really like first of all your uh, meditation again on the unintended consequences or side effects. I'm thinking of the Stanislav Petrov incident oh, where it's yeah. like yeah. that was. I mean, that's like nail nail biting. Uh, kind of like the odds are like what is hanging in the balance in that type of situation and understanding or being able to reason or empathize about known information or obscured information or lost in translation and definitely with the situation of having you know nuclear arms on the table or uh, my my kind of fear with the AI things is having you know varying levels of scrupulosity between these nations and then deployment of nation level resources and it's like well Russia's AI did X and China's AI did Y US AI you know there's going to be like these whether we like it or not these representatives of some country's ideology and that's going to be I think it's hard to deny that there will be some semblance of bias in you know the way that these again these AIs are are developed and so it's kind of going to in some ways bubble the problem up and you know, create additional uh, difficulties with uh, human interaction. Yeah, I wanted to. So, moving towards wrapping up, you've you've done some work and mentioned your interest in bioenhancements to humans, yeah. and so all of the things we've discussed have implications for uh, future generations. And we th- uh, see today companies like Neuralink, um, brain computer interfaces, is something that you discuss. What I guess so you've you've divided these technologies into pharmaceuticals, bioelectronics, and then genetics. Yeah. What, I guess, are the most pressing ethical concerns with these capabilities? What are the most interesting to you? Um, in my mind, you know, there's kind of like the un, like the eventuality of something like 23andMe, where it's like, oh, you've got this gene marker, here's like your possible partner, here's this crossover, yeah. you better not get with this person because this is a cocktail for, you know, some terrible diseases that we can't treat yet, or, you know, your child is not going to have this marker. Yeah. How do you, like, make sense of that? What are your worries? What are your kind of interests? Well, so there are areas that, from a medical point of view, are super exciting because we're starting to understand better how the human brain works. Uh, we're very, very far from understanding how consciousness gets created, um, uh, and but the progress that we've made is astounding and seems to be even accelerating, and AI will probably facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the genetic advances have also been phenomenal. People thought, oh, the Human Genome Project uh, now genetic engineering of humans is right around the corner. But we still don't understand, you know, people were still then talking about junk DNA. Now we understand it wasn't junk DNA at all. It was highly functional and important stuff. And so we still have a long way to go there. In both of those domains, genetics and uh, I guess I would say bioelectronics, based on understanding the functional architecture of the human brain, potentially massive positive impacts curing diseases, curing, solving mental health problems, and just putting the coolness of understanding ourselves so much better as mental, mentally functioning creatures would be terrific. There's the danger from uh, on the brain side of things that we'll be able to manipulate this organ mm. 
in ways that severely degrade our humanity. And we're not there yet, fortunately. Our ignorance is still shielding us from mm. that. But we're eroding that ignorance as fast as we can because we're excited to find out more about how we work. But as we learn more about how we work, then that will be instantly giving ourselves the power to manipulate how we work. And that, who are we then? Mm. That's the big question. And how much of that can you mess around with before you've actually changed the nature of what we are and who we are in ways that render us unrecognizable. And the same thing applies you know, in, through the other lens with genetics. To what extent um, will we be able to manipulate? With the genetics, it's, it's interesting because it's a highly uh, probabilistic uh, interaction between genetic factors and environmental factors, nature and nurture working together. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're never going to be able to order traits for your offspring like you order anchovies on a pizza, right? That's not the way it's going to be. But you can increase the, the, the likelihood that it's going to taste like anchovies. Mm, and there, therefore, in a, statistically, for a population level for intervention, if you're doing it for millions of people, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot more anchovies if that's what you want, <laughs> right? Maybe you don't like anchovies. Maybe it's something else that you're going to put on it, more pepperoni or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And here, one of the useful distinctions that I make is uh, the distinction between genetic modifications where you modify the DNA versus epigenetic modifications where you modify those molecular level functions that regulate how the DNA gets expressed. Okay. So epigenetic modification, the, the metaphor that I use for that is the DNA is the white and black keys of the piano. Mm -hmm. That stays fixed. Mm -hmm. Let's say you haven't done any changes to the DNA yet. Mm -hmm. But the epigenetic changes are the piano player, mm -hmm. which decide which keys get played okay. in what order and how hard are they being pressed. And every one of our genes is epigenetically regulated that way. Is it going to be functionally, causally efficacious, or is it going to be quote-unquote silent? Mm -hmm. And the epigenome plays that piano. So wow. the difference there is a useful one because genetic changes, changes to the DNA, are probably going to be irreversible. It, it, people are going to have them engineered into their genome, and then that will propagate through their body as they grow. Hard to change that once the organism is running around in the world. Mm. Epigenetic changes can be made at any point in a person's life. So. You could say, let's wait until people are 21 and then give them the right to make epigenetic changes to the way that piano player is playing their genome. Wow. And, oh, then that means that, oh, I didn't like that. Well, it can in many cases, those will be reversible. In some cases, maybe they won't. But that opens up a whole different form of genetic modification where you're actually giving people, the baby doesn't have a chance to consent. Mm. It just gets what the parents chose for it. Here, it would be a, a form of genetic modification that would be morally more acceptable because of people deciding to do it for themselves or not. But the big question there, again, is what happens when millions of people are making modifications to themselves? So will there be trait fads? Will there be you know, an arms race among parents 
to boost their children's IQ. Well, what will happen then? What, you know, how is that going to actually play out in practice in society? Today, we see that arms race with people putting their kids through college prep classes so that they get into the top schools and get the top jobs and you know, race for dominance once again. Mm -hmm. So how does that play out when we have the power to modify our being at the level of our genome mm. or through direct interventions bioelectronically into the brain? Those are <coughs> huge uh, society, civilization shaping questions. Will the rich have the most access to the you know the, the best of these bioenhancement technologies and the poor are kind of left shit out of luck? Mm. Well, what kind of world would that be? It would take a, a, a world that's already grossly un, uh, unequal and inscribe that inequality into biology. Today, you can be born poor, but somehow if you're lucky, you can still make it out. But in a world where if you're poor, you're just not being bioenhanced, and if you're rich, you are being bioenhanced, suddenly you, you know, no matter how, the, the film Gattaca, you know, depicts somebody mm. in that. Have you seen that film? I haven't. I've, it's come up recently, though. I need to it's a, give it's it a watch. It's an old film, but it's, it's, the premise is completely implausible to me. There's a stratified society where there's the genetically enhanced and they're sort of superior beings. Mm -hmm. And then there's the un and unmodified people who are inferior beings. One of the quote-unquote unmodified inferior beings manages to rise up through sheer dint of hard work and perform at the level of mm. the genetically enhanced. In my estimation, that's grossly underestimating how powerful the genetic enhancements are likely to become. Where if you're unmodified, you're just going to be like an Amish person trying to compete with, you know, Elon Musk. Mm. Good luck. Yeah, that's it, it. It kind of brings to a head what we've discussed. Basically, the you have the upside and then you have the potential downside because you you look at Neuralink and you're yeah. kind of like, okay, you've got this monkey playing pong and the yeah. the goal is to basically you know have someone without any limbs actuate a prosthetic limb or something yeah. but then on the other side of that coin you can kind of and you know there might be there might be a use case for it i think there's uh i don't i don't want to say whether it's um explored extensively now but being able to use kind of like surface level body signals to correlate with brain activity and then intention or uh deliberate action basically yeah. and then you know, that seems like a slippery slope to mind reading. And then you're kind of like, that kind of pulls yeah. the rug out of our humanity and like our, our dignity, so. Yeah, and it's not clear that we'll ever be able to do the kind of mind reading that we imagine in certain sci-fi novels and sci-fi movies. Mm -hmm. Because it's not clear how our thoughts are actually stored. Mm. Uh, but, you know, but it's certainly, we know enough now to know that it's not like reading a tape, you know, or something like that. It's something holographically sort of stored in multiple places at the same time. But uh, we don't, the, the closer we get to being able to see how the brain functions in that way, the closer we do get to certain kinds of mind reading. Imagine what that would do. Imagine the FBI has a gadget that they can, a microphone that they can point at a window from 100 yards away and it can report what's being said in the room by catching the micro vibrations on the glass. Mm. 
Now imagine if they had a device like that, that instead of putting on the skull cap so the person knows that they're being monitored, mm. you're being, you're, you're having some aspect of your mental world being read from, maybe it's not reading your thoughts exactly, but it's picking up. Some representation. Yeah, that would be, I mean, that's my example of a inherently evil technology that should never be developed. Even if you're preventing terrorist attacks by you know, using it. Mm. Because, yeah, you've prevented a terrorist attack, but you've degraded all of humankind. We've all lost that fundamental mental privacy mm. that's the essential, an essential aspect of like, our selfhood. Mm. That's really, yeah. I, I think I would have to, to take your side on that. There's actually another, well, I guess an alternate representation or manifestation of that issue, which is, you know, I started, I was mentioning some of the work I do with, um, you know, ensuring the security of information. So encryption is basically yeah. how, right. you know, your bank account details don't get stolen when you order something online. But that same technology, the encryption, the security, um, you know, the encoding of data into an unreadable format by eyes that shouldn't see it yeah. is what allows, you know, criminals to operate child abuse perpetrators to do what they do. Yeah. And so there's kind of... Yeah defenders of privacy and then you know what do we get if if there's no privacy then it's basically a soft core version of mind reading where right. everyone's information is just on the table and yeah. so yeah i think very very fundamental like information level and intention level complicated issues that and how is your field going to be affected by quantum computers i think that's that's definitely an open question as well i Personally, probably don't have enough experience to to comment on what it could and or would and uh, wouldn't do. But I know that there there are serious efforts to identify what are called quantum resistant algorithms. So um, one of I think the assumptions is like, okay, the NSA is X years ahead of industry in developing these types of things. So um, I ta I spoke with a mathematician not too long ago and. Um, one of the common encryption protocols is uh, elliptic curve cryptography. It's a crypto system, I guess. And he was saying, like, you can kind of maybe assume that the NSA has a backdoor to this. Like, they're working on quantum-resistant encryption. And so, um, again, the grain of salt being I don't have a rigorous training in this area, but, you know, it's pretty much like a quantum computer would do to a traditional crypto system um, Basically, it would render it completely ineffective. It would yeah. it would be like not having any encryption at all. Yeah. So then there's like, yeah. okay, that can that can become a reality with sufficient innovation yeah. in that field. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I was reading somewhere that hackers today are probably storing hacked encrypted information, mm -hmm. which they can't access because it's encrypted. Mm -hmm. But hey, five years from now, this new quantum, you know, you buy one little qubit. Yep, yep. powered computer, and suddenly all that information yep. is available to you naked and transparent. And, you know, God knows how much they they already have that they're just kind of sitting on and waiting for the... So it's nice to hear that quantum... What's it called again? Quantum resistant. Quantum algorithms. resistant. Yeah, so I think it's... Yeah, NIST, National Institute yeah. of Standards, and yeah. so I, that's probably totally butchered. But, yeah, yeah they're basically investing in researchers to yeah. identify... I guess there's yeah. some notion of uh, empirical proof that this can't be broken. I think it gets into more theoretical uh, computer science. But I know not too long ago there was, uh, you know, this is maybe a little disconcerting, but there was an algorithm that had made its way, you know, maybe to the second or third round, like, whoa, this it seems really promising. 
and for one reason or another, I think there was a misconception or a miscalculation, and they kind of uh, basically foiled that algorithm on like a really basic kind of deprecated type of processor. And it's like, I thought you guys had audited this as quantum resistant. This is like a 10-year-old processor that broke this thing. So yeah, I'm not, it's, yeah. it's definitely an immature. I think, I think I read about that too. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, I don't understand how quantum en encryption uh, would work. I, mm. And I don't understand therefore how quantum resistant, you know, I don't understand what, what makes the quantum uh, you know, computers capable of reading through the encryption that we have today. So I'd like, I have to educate myself more about what, how that works and then what would actually mean to be quantum mm. resistant level of encryption. Sure. I don't understand that at all. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I think, well, from my training in traditional computer science, a lot of things basically resolve to enumerating a, a state space. So you know, our computers here can store like two to the 64 states. And so something like insert all the technical background about quantum computing, it allows for a much larger set of states to kind of be enumerated. And so the idea with quantum resistance would be your crypto system has a unfathomably massive number of states that is still pretty slow for a quantum computer so to explore. It's just uh, quantum, more, more numbers, yeah. more number of states, yeah. and so, you know, it's kind of this cat and mouse game that yeah. pervades a lot of um, our society. Wow. Yeah. Um, just wanted to wrap up. So you have a lot of really fascinating experience, a lot of interesting commentary on civilization, technology, the history of of these complex interactions. What advice could you offer young people who? You know, are interested in in this interesting area that you find yourself in, yeah. uh, making sense of civilization, technological progress, the future of humanity. Uh, what would you suggest in terms of better understanding or better practicing history? What skills or uh, what opportunities should be prioritized? Well, I thought about when I, I I read that question in your list of questions, and I I thought about. Um, my most honest answer is, what's the most powerful tool I've ever discovered in my whole life? Right? What, what has been the most impactful single tool that I have encountered in terms of changing my quality of life for the better? Meditation. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's A awesome. daily meditation practice. Do you mind sharing uh, no, your no, no. protocol? I, mean, and I, I have a class on human flourishing where I actually require the students to do some form of meditation for four weeks. Okay. come back and report on it. Um, and the, the, I already ran that class last, last fall, and they were mm -hmm. like, oh my god. You know, and well, some of them were like, I can't do this. this. It's driving me crazy. Can I do something else? Yeah, yeah you can do something else. I'm not going to force you to do it. Mm -hmm. But I, I want you to at least try. Mm -hmm. And um, so I make them read this wonderful book by a, a Buddhist meditation teacher named Jack Cornfield about just sitting and watching your breath five minutes and, you know, and building up from that. So that was, I never mentioned that when I was talking about my own personal biography, but mm -hmm. when I was in my 20s, in graduate school, I sort of escalated up from five minutes to 10 minutes to an hour a day, and then I went on a one-day retreat, and it was amazing, then I did a three-day retreat, and it was even more amazing, <laughs> and eventually I did 80 days did of nonstop really? meditation, you know, 18 hours a day wow. for 80 days. And Where was this? In Massachusetts. I okay. went to a retreat place in Massachusetts with these Buddhist teachers. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, but I will say that I've now adapted meditation. Um, I'm no longer meditating in the way that I was back then. I'm not following the same exact goals and techniques and mm -hmm. understanding of what I was doing. I meditate for 10 minutes every morning. Um, I'm still using the skills that I learned during those retreats. Um, but I'm more, in my case, I'm so cerebral that it's very helpful to just sit and I use the meditation more to get in touch with my feelings mm. and be aware. And uh, that reverberates through the rest of my day. It changes the way I interact with people. When I encounter a crisis or a difficulty, I, I just sort of, there's a wonderful scene in one of the Star Wars movies where um, Qui-Gon Jinn is fighting against uh, Darth, Darth Maul. Maul. Oh, a huge and, fan. And, the, and you know, the, they're, they're fighting, and then the door closes between them, and they can't fight each other, and he just sits and, and goes into meditation. Mm -hmm. It's a metaphor, in that moment, for, you know, the other day, I, I got some really disturbing news about a friend of mine. Mm. I was really upset, but I just went upstairs and meditated for about an hour and a half, and it was super helpful. Um, so I would say that in terms of the, uh, if I had an advice to give to somebody your age, it's check it out. It's it for me, it's ended up being an enormously powerful tool. And when you so, you don't have to get more into the details, I guess. But when you say meditation, you're basically because I have started to get into this more. I've been wanting to and have have found great benefit as well from it. Is it kind of like, is it apt to say that you're kind of, uh, the at least the analogy that I have is you're like looking into a stream and the yeah. stream is like your thoughts going yeah. by and you're like, okay, thoughts, observed, feelings, observed. sensations. Mm -hmm. And there's, then there's guided meditations, which I encourage my students not to do when they're, no, when not they're, to do. I mean, yes, absolutely. Do all the guided meditation you want. That's great. I've mm -hmm. had wonderful experiences with it. But what's especially powerful for me is the open-ended. Let's just look at what's coming down the stream. Mm -hmm. And as if you do that every day, you start to become a, a friend to yourself, or at least that's the possibility. I mean, there's a whole infrastructure around it of attitudes that you need to bring. Mm -hmm. You need to be patient, loving to yourself, because a lot of what comes down the stream ain't pretty. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of depressing or frustrating. You have to be patient because the mind wanders away mm -hmm. for... Professional meditators, it still wanders away. They just have learned how to work with that. That's what the mind does. But in terms of impact, on uh, th there's a book that I'd recommend. Mm -hmm. it's, it's called A Path with Heart by Path Jack Cornfield. Okay. Cornfield with a K. And he was one of the teachers at this 80-day retreat, and he's written about a dozen books. He's pretty old now. He's got a retreat center out in Marin County, California as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but it does a fantastic job of introduction to this kind of watch the stream type of open-ended meditation where it's not guided. You're just looking at what's happening inside you and becoming acquainted with the inner landscape of who you are. And it's enormously powerful. And it's humbling as hell. It's funny sometimes because you're just like, really? You know, again? Yeah. Really? Like, I did that? I thought that? Really? But it's not. It, the thoughts just kind of think themselves after a while. You sort of disidentify from that being just, that's all that I am. It's something more. Mm. So it opens up possibilities for a much more vibrant, 
and actually, I would say, emotionally positive interaction with the people in your life, with the trees, with the troubles that, that come up. That's been a hugely impactful thing for me. That's great to hear. I actually have found a little bit of the same. I mentioned like taking some, usually it's like 20 or 30 minutes and it's, it's not, it's not uh, always like hardcore reflection. You know, sometimes I'm reading, sometimes I'm just watching the trees, but yeah. I do notice kind of like an attenuation of the, the worries and the fleeting, like, oh, this and this and this. It's what's in front of me. There's birds chirping. Yeah. I see the trees kind of flowing and it, yeah. it helps kind of foster that appreciation for you know, being here and now. And, and what's also, what's happening internally. You know, it's, not, it's the birds and then this thought about the bird. And then, oh, what, what thought gets triggered by that thought? And what are the patterns that I'm seeing? Mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. The kind that, that, that's called insight meditation because you're gaining insight into what are the, what's this inner landscape that's me? And it, it's, it's a 2,500-year-old tradition. And this guy Cornfield really lays it out in a way that is perfect for a Westerner. To you don't have to sort of get into all this stuff about reincarnation, which I don't buy at all. And, mm -hmm. and I have no idea. What do I know? And you know, I don't know if there's an afterlife. I don't know if there's reincarnation. All I know is that this has been a really powerful tool. I'll have to check out that book, Doctor yeah. Best. This has been. An incredibly fascinating conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Appreciate all of the perspectives that you offer, and I look forward to your your future books. So, thank you so much for your time. It's it my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Michael Bess. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to check out other episodes of the Grasp Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you've enjoyed other episodes, please subscribe and rate the show five stars if you feel so inclined. As always, thank you for your interest and your curiosity.